Uh, did everyone get a set of notes? No. Okay. This is our final class on worship. So um, it's been an enjoyable study for me as we've as I've gone through some of these things. Hopefully, it's been helpful along the way. I'll warn you that I'm I'm going to work really, really hard to reserve time at the end for general questions about corporate worship at our church or more generally or theoretically. Um, since this is our final lesson, this is the time for um, some more free-flowing conversation at the end. Um, but as, as we work through this final lesson, I have uh, titled it, Back to the Future, Eschatological Worship. And um, I, I did that, and then as I was writing the lesson, as is normal, I realized there's, there's an important section that we had to hit, and then as I was working on that, that section became the lesson. So there's not as much eschatology in this lesson as the title would indicate, so I have two book recommendations for you to follow up on this. The first one is this book called Eschatological Discipleship, and I'd, I'd recommend this if you want to think about how the, you, what you believe about the end times, what is to come, impacts your Christian discipleship. And then the second little book called Reading the Times, it's by a guy named Jeffrey Bilbro, and it's primarily about reading the news, actually, but he has really helpful thoughts and ideas about uh, the way that our conception of time relates to our worship. All right. Any any uh, questions or comments about where we're going today? Okay. Let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word that guides us and for the mission and responsibility and privilege that you've given us to worship you. We pray that we would do so with reverence and respect and with doctrinal fidelity. In Christ we pray, amen. Well, there are a variety of novels and films that explore the way that the past and future collide in the present. But, of course, that's not a biblical imperative. Uh, but one of them in popular literature in movies is a classic film, Back to the Future. And in this film, this kid, Marty McFly, has to travel to the past to essentially make sure his parents... rescued and so he's got to go back to the future to rescue the guy and there are several three three of these films and in almost every one of them while mcfly is in the past there are things that happen that are potential distractions from the mission um, whether he he gets distracted along the way but he comes to the realization that what is going to happen in the future needs to happen or else he's not going to exist. And so he's able to have a focused, mission-driven experience in, in what he experiences as the present because of what's to come in the future. Now, of course, our lives are a little bit different than McFly's life in that the future does not depend on us. 
God controls the future, but God gives us a mission as the means by which the future happens. Um, have, you, have you thought about that? Jesus commissioned his disciples in a way that would bring in the kingdom into greater fullness. In every person that came to Christ and repented and obeyed and believed, there was a fuller expression of the kingdom along the way. And, and that's still true today. And this should impact the way that we think about our Christian worship. There's a coming day when there will be knowledge of the Lord that covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we have a responsibility and a mission to declare the knowledge of God until that happens. So our vision of the future, which last week we learned in the creed, is expressed in this way, that he will return in glory and of his kingdom there will be no end. That vision of the future shapes our lives now, but it also shapes the church's worship now. So when we gather together, our worship should have the controlling features of, of the coming of Christ in the future kingdom. So, so you see how as we look to the future, it, it changes the way we live now. Somewhat similar to the way McFly envisions the future or the, the lack of a future for him, it, it controlled the way he lived then. Well, we need to think about these things as we think about worship, but if we're going to think about the future, we have to think about time. And um, we, we started this Bible class series talking very much about the future, right? The world is not going to dissolve like snow and go away forever. Um, God is renewing this world. He's renewing us in his kingdom. Heaven will emerge with earth and Christ will reign forever and ever. And so as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, your labor in the Lord is not in vain in him. What you do in this life actually matters. So your worship in this life actually matters. So we have this vision of the future that's not, I'm going to be floating on a cloud forever. It's, I'm going to be participating in the new life in Christ in the kingdom forever. Um, and I, I think that I recommended reading C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. Uh, to help you bolster your theological imagination about the future. Read that, um, have this understanding of a thick existence in the future, and that's going to help you in, in the way that I'm trying to talk about the, the future impacting the present. So because we have those categories, we're going to focus on a asking this question, when am I? For us to really position ourselves rightly, we need to ask, what time is it? Uh, but instead of simply recognizing the times, the church and individual Christians need to recognize their relationship to the times. And this ultimately is a matter of knowing the biblical storyline. We hit this over and over again here where we talk about the redemptive historical narrative. That's why we say you've got to read the whole Bible and read large chunks of the Bible so you can see what God is doing from the very beginning all the way to the very end. And we try to bring this out when we preach and talk. That, that's the foundationally what's going on here. But, but there's a conception of time that we need to work to understand because the church, by the way she operates and worships and lives, provides an implicit critique of the way that the rest of the world looks at time. Okay, I'm going to read a, a short paragraph here for you to try to emphasize the complexity of thinking about how Christians relate to time and how church life relates to time, uh, reading from this guy, uh, Matthew Westerholm. Pastors, and this is really Christians too, pastors should evaluate local rhythms, seasons, and celebrations to determine what sort of response should be made. 
Is Super Bowl Sunday a worldly value that demands protest? Or is it an example of common grace to be celebrated? Is Halloween a celebration of pagan values to be protested, maybe replaced by a Reformation Day costume party? Or is it a common grace of unusual community interaction to be celebrated? To stir something new into the pot, is school summer vacation break a worldly celebration of sloth and displacement? Or is it a common grace of a break to be mirrored by scaled backs in ministry and preaching. So his point is that the world measures time in certain ways. Super Bowl Sunday is a way of measuring time. How many weeks until the Super Bowl we talk like that? Halloween, summer vacation. Well, the way that the church operates either affirms a world measurement of time or it critiques it and challenges it. So as a church, whether we're talking about our church calendar or what we include in our corporate worship, are we going to make a big deal of 4th of July in a corporate worship service? Well, doing so affirms not only something about the values of our nation, but the way of measuring time in our nation. And, and you could put any other holiday in there. Mother's Day or Father's Day. Are these common grace expressions that should be embraced or are these ideas that should be challenged? Well, we have to think about the way we relate to time and the measurement of time as a, in, in our corporate worship. This is not an easy task, and the burden largely falls on the pastors of a church to do this because the way that they structure the service obviously is going to reinforce or um, push against some of these things. That's also true with our church calendar. This is why we try to carefully work on our church calendar. Um, it's something that we're trying to grow in and figure out what do we want our lives to be shaped by, and those are the things that end up on a church calendar. So um, any comments or questions on that? I think you're tracking with where I'm going. Okay, so there are two kinds of time that we need to talk about if we're going to circle back to what we embrace or push against in the events of a calendar. Kairos and Kronos are two distinct Greek words for times. If you're a Marvel fan, I think this guy Kronos shows up probably as a you know iteration of Greek mythology. Is that right? I'm guessing Marvel. I think so. But in Greek mythology, there's the the guy Kronos, right? So I would guess that shows up in, in modern literature as well. But Kairos and Kronos are two distinct ways of talking about time. And Kairos refers to a period or a season of time. Okay, so it's with an implication for this is the right season for something to happen, the right time for something to happen. Um, and there's no emphasis on chronology here. So it's more rhythmic. So we, we have these ideas when we talk about the summer season or the fall season, the spring, the winter. There's not a, really a true chronology that we're talking about within those seasons. We're talking about the season uh, as a whole. Chronos time, and, and that's where you get chronology, right, are the passing moments of time. So if kairos are the seasons of time, chronos time is the passing day-by-day day moments of time in which you experience uh, the, the, you know, passing of events and these sorts of things. So conceptually, kairos time can be thought of as rhythms or seasons. Kronos time can be thought of as the ticking by passing moments. And I want to suggest that kronos time, these passing moments, Kronos time finds its significance and meaning within kairos time or within the season within which it is bound. 
hang with me. This is a little bit, uh, this is probably the, the most, um, you know, out there thing that we have to work through in this whole class is thinking about time. Thinking about time is complicated, and I don't have the right um, philosophical capacities to do so well, but we have to at least dive into it. And we see this expressed even in the common language of the, the ancient hymns that we sing. So in the hymn, O God, Our Help in Ancient Past, we see both Kairos and Kronos time being talked about. So in the first verse, before the hills in order stood or earth received her frame, from everlasting thou art God to endless years the same. Well, this emphasizes the kairos time, the endless years that rhythmically pass. Well, the next verse emphasizes chronos time that, that passes sequentially. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all of us away. We fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. So, so chronos is this passing, these successive moments. And even in our hymnody, the, these Christians have thought that it's important to reflect on the distinct uh, ways that time happens and exists. I think that this distinction between Kairos and Kronos time then helps us make, dis make uh, right application or sense of Paul's instruction in Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 to pay careful attention to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making most use of the time. This is Kairos time, the season of time, because the days, and I think this fits into the chronos time, that's not the word used, uh, the word aura, you know, hour is used, because the days are evil. So his point is, Christians, you need to, in some translations, redeem this season or make the best use of this season of time because the passing moments left unredeemed, left unused well, are evil. So Christians need to ask, what, what time even is it? If we're going to make best use of this season, what season is it? Well, throughout the New Testament, the, the authors of the New Testament reconceive of time, and eventually all of human history has reconceived of time based on the Christ event. And even though it's sort of hidden in the now, you know, common era and before common era designation of, of time, the BC and AD distinction are times that recognize that Christ changed our experience of the overarching season of time, the Kairos time. So although the passing days are evil left to themselves, this season, this Kairos that we're to make the best use of, is permeated by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that allows for time's redemption. Now, this new season that we're in, the season ushered in by Christ's resurrection, is not the final season, okay? It's, it's not the final season, which is why we need to make the best use of it, because another season is coming. But it's the direct precursor to the finality of the kingdom. So we talk about this season, this time, as the time of the already and the not yet, where Christ's kingdom has broken in through the resurrection power of Christ so that what we do now is not in vain, but it's not everything that's yet to come. And this, of course, has implications for our worship because we worship the Christ whose reign has already sprung, but the full warmth of the summer is not yet here. And so we need to operate in this season of time, this Kairos time, in a way, in our worship, that recognizes it for what it is. It's an anticipation of the return of the Lord. Does this make sense in, wh in what I'm distinguishing between Kairos and Kronos time? Okay, Tim? Is it that distinction 
so I put in a footnote there that this distinction is somewhat artificial. And then as I was a little bit bored over the weekend, I looked up every instance of both Kairos and Kronos in the New Testament, and it's actually pretty much there. Um, there, there are a few aberrations, but in just about every instance, when Kairos appears, I think we're to understand it as a season. And when Kronos appears, I think we're to identify them as passing moments. Um, that it, it is pretty interesting how that works. And I think it helps us understand that um, your, your very moments of the day find meaning and purpose if you locate them in the right season. And, and this is, I think, instructive for our whole lives. We talk about orienting our lives, making God the center of our lives. Well, one of the ways that we do that is by recognizing the season that we're in and now aligning the passing moments of our days to that season. Um, and I think this, if you start reading the whole Bible, this might start to make some sense of why there are different directives for the church than Israel. I think that would be something important to reflect on is and uh, in, in even the, the legislation and the laws that come. I, I think the new season we're in, we, we often talk about these in terms of being in the old covenant or the new covenant. That's a, a good way of talking about it. Well, the moments that pass in these seasons, in the moments that pass in our gatherings for worship, now are dictated by the new season we're in. Um, one illustration, when, when um, John's disciples come to Jesus and say, how come we're fasting and your disciples aren't? I think that's the situation. And Jesus says, well, when, when the bridegroom is here, there's no more reason to fast. Now it's time to rejoice. Well, the very passing moments and activities are determined by that new season that's brought in by, by the bridegroom. Well, we're in this already not yet of the bridegroom where both feasting and fasting are in order. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Good question. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Are there subcategories of Kairos time? And the answer is yes. So I'm going to emphasize the corporate categories, but you're right. The, we can make so much more sense of these things if we start thinking in this way. So old men um, act as fathers, right? Uh, I don't want to embarrass Steve. I think Steve's doing a good, is a good example of this, of someone who's not throwing away their retirement, but recognizing the right season. And that's, a, that's, a, that's a, an overt critique of the way the world talks about hitting 55 and beyond, right? That's your vacation season. No, it's a service season. Um, I was recently at a missions conference just a couple weeks ago, and the guy speaking was talking about how like 90% of the wealth in America is held by people between the ages 55 and 75, and these are the people doing nothing for the kingdom of God on the whole. Well, well, that's the way that the world talks about that kairos time for the individual or for that grouping of people. Well, the Bible gives us a different idea for that. Um, in, in the words of uh, John Piper, don't collect seashells. Don't spend your life collecting seashells, right? Um, so we need to think about time differently corporately and individually. Um, but I'll emphasize the corporate nature here. Good. Okay, let's talk then about the Christian calendar. This guy, Matthew Erickson, observes the unfortunate reality that many Christians and churches are subtly shaped, and I 
say, not so subtly shaped, more by the time structures of the average work week or cultural holidays than the life of Christ or the church. This is especially true, I think, in low church traditions that have set aside the Christian or liturgical calendar. If you talk to your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, they are going to measure time primarily in terms of their 40 to 60 hour work week and in terms of the calendars that pop up on your, your federal holiday calendar. Um, this is the way that life is structured and then for those with children, their summer vacation schedules and spring break will fall in there as well. And unfortunately, I think unfortunately, the church has been shaped to think in terms of that calendar in that way of measuring and designating time. So what recourse does the church have? What guide would the church have to remind her of the time, Kairos time and Kronos time in which she lives and worships? Well, as I've already mentioned, the redemptive historical narrative is the foundational work to help us measure time. We know what season we're in now, and we have a declaration of the season that is to come. But the church in the past, and even now in the present, has devised a way of orienting themselves to the season that they're in. And that time is called the the liturgical calendar or the Christian calendar. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? Okay. When, when we talk about the liturgical calendar, um, we'll talk about events like Advent and Lent and Trinity Sunday and these sorts of things along the way. Um, but this, this church calendar or Christian calendar, liturgical calendar, any of those names work, but finds its roots and its inspiration in the pattern of ancient Israel's life. So in the ancient days of Israel, Israel understood their whole national and ethnic identity as an overt critique on the worship and way of life of the rest of the world. Unfortunately, as we read the Old Testament, Israel did not do a very good job about that. And so during harvest time, instead of praying to Yahweh for food, they would, you know, participate in fertility cults instead and follow these ancient pagan calendars and timelines and acts of worship. But in their best moments and when they were following the legislation given by the Lord, they had feast days and festivals and seasons of time like the Passover that were intended to to draw them into the redemptive work of God in their life and throughout history. The Passover, of course, is the most overt one of these. When they were drawn into this, they were to recognize this yearly. It was to reorient them. It was to shape their way of life. And not just as something that they remembered, but as something that they enacted. So if you look at the Old Testament, very often when there's a festival to be celebrated or a season of time to be observed, it wasn't just in terms of um, recognizing today is Passover. Huzzah. No, it was we're going to kill an animal and we're going to eat a feast or or in the Feast of Booths, we're going to be in a booth. We're going to live in this temporary shelter for a little bit. So the the calendar had real impact on what actually happened in the lives of the people. And as Christians read the Old Testament and saw some level of continuity between the church and Israel, they decided to say, we need to have a way of measuring time as well. And, And we need to have feasts and festivals that allow us to reenact God's redemptive work throughout history. And so in a very 
um, discombobulated way, Christians across the globe started to recognize certain days and holidays and festivals. And, and even there, you can maybe hear holy days and festivals along the way. And this, w- this did not happen in a uniform way. So sometimes you'll read about the, the liturgical calendar and it will sound almost as if from the days of the apostles, there was this perfectly harmoniously instituted church calendar that every Christian followed. That's not the case. And that actually weakens the argument, I think, for, for doing this. Um, but it is interesting that within 300 years, there was general agreement on a lot of events to be celebrated by the Christian community. Now, even to this day, there are debates about the actual dating of the birth of Christ and Easter and these sorts of things. So everything has not been ironed out 2,000 years later. It won't be, probably. Um, But at least from the times of the apostles, there was one way of measuring time, which was the weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper. And then as time passed, other days, other events were added to celebrate as well. Now, I think this testifies to now to the remarkable unity of the celebration of the Christian calendar. Uh, this divergent, you know, very variated way of, of constructing time and thinking about time has now become fairly unified as we look across the world. And of course, in the Eastern and the Western church, there are differences. And then if you think more broadly, and we need to think more globally about Christianity than our own experience of it, um, when we celebrate Christmas, in other parts of the world, it is hot and dry. And so when we connect the imagery of winter and in the breaking of light at the darkest time of year, well, there are other places that have to refigure the imagery of Christ's birth to account for desert-like conditions. And then when we celebrate Easter and it's spring and everything's flourishing and we think of the resurrection because the lily plants are all blooming, well, there, there are places that are very cold and they have to think of the resurrection in a different way. So, so we need to remember not to too localize our celebration in, in the imagery that comes along with it. But it is remarkable that much of the world can celebrate the same imagery on the same days as we think about the events of, of Christ's life and God's redemptive work in history. Now, I have mentioned already that the low church tradition and Baptists find themselves in this tradition have for a long time set aside the Christian calendar and just basically ignored it. And, and to one degree with good reason, I think that in the United States in particular, as there were individuals who were converting from Catholicism to uh, free church traditions. There was this breaking away that was perhaps in in line with the reformers of the past, and there was a discarding of anything that had the, the slightest scent of Catholicism in it. And, w- and we understand that, but I think we also understand that humans just react on pendulum swings to things. And, and there was, unfortunately, a discarding of things that were just genuinely Christian. They, they were Roman Catholic, I suppose, but only in as much as they, they were first Christian. And as there's sort of been a, an evening out, and as denominations have started to become the same thing, we've talked about this a little bit, when does a Baptist church become a non-denominational church? Well, all non-denominational churches are Baptist churches, I think. So it, it's these things that 
start to even out in the stream of church history, some of these distinctions have gone away to, to where some things that are genuinely, genuinely Christian can now be recovered again without offending the sensibilities of, of individuals who have come out of probably uh, bad, bad church systems. And I think the liturgical calendar is one of them. So if, if you're tracking with even Southern Baptists, but Baptists as a whole, British Baptists, I think in particular, there's been a recovery and a renewal of some of these ancient Christian traditions, which have helped shape the church for, that, for nearly 2,000 years. And one of them is the church calendar. So I want to read a quote by one guy who explains the benefit of attending to the Christian calendar. So it's one way to think about the difference between the calendar we use every day, our personal calendars or the federal calendar, and the Christian or liturgical calendar that, d- that goes, not does, that goes through the cycles of the Christian year is this. Our everyday calendar is how we order our days, but the li- Christian or liturgical calendar is about the meaning of those days. Put another way, our everyday calendar tells us how to count our days, but the Christian or liturgical calendar tells us how the days count. I, I think that's helpful. When we start looking at the Christian calendar and imposing it over our federal and personal calendars, we start to get a different perspective about what time means. And there's a calling on us to live our lives out in a little bit of a different way. So the liturgical calendar functions as a way to track the kairos time, providing the framework for the passing of chronos time as we schedule our days and weeks. So I'll talk a little bit more about how this works in a moment. But my brief defense for giving any attention to the Christian calendar is the, the, Christ, the Jewish roots in, in an example of ancient Israel measuring time with a religious calendar. And then the early church in, in Christians from very early on recognizing we need to have a critique of the way that pagans orient their time. And, and we find ourselves, I think, in a demythologized pagan calendar time. So we don't have festivals to, you know, Baal and other gods, but we have festivals to other idols represented in American culture and across the world. And I think we need a recovery of the Christian calendar as a critique of that time. Questions or comments there before I move on to explain the cycles of the liturgical calendar. Okay. When I'm talking about the liturgical calendar, I'm mainly talking about three cycles of the church year in the six festivals, though a few more that I think are important that fall within those cycles. I'm not primarily talking about um, the uh, days that recognize various saints. So I I read an interesting article this week by a Baptist who was suggesting that we need to raise up Baptist saints and have saints days for these historic Baptists. And believe it or not, that happens without calling it that um, in the Baptist tradition, whether that's in local churches or in like the denomination uh, as a whole. But then as I think about the Southern Baptist Convention, which we partner with, there's the Lottie Moon offerings. Lottie Moon is a saint according to the Southern Baptist calendar. The Southern, it's just what it is. We don't call it that, but that's what happens. And if you can have that category there, that is much of what happens, uh, depending on the tradition in, with the Christian calendar, with St. Patrick's Day and, and where St. Gregory's and all the rest. It's, it's very similar to the, the reverence that's given to Lottie Moon and some other famous Southern Baptists. But I want to focus on the cycles that are on the Christian calendar. 
I've noted that even this is debated a little bit. Are there two or three cycles? I'm, I'm going to point out three. The first is the incarnation cycle. And this cycle includes the seasons of Advent and Epiphany, the feast days of Christmas and Epiphany. Advent comprises the four weeks leading up to the Christmas feast day. Epiphany is a season that begins 12 days after Christmas and concludes on the first Sunday of Lent. Epiphany is the feast day, takes place on January 6th and commemorates the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. So that's really briefly what happens there. The Paschal cycle includes the seasons of Lenten and Easter. The, these feast days include Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. Though other days like Ash Wednesday can be included here as well. And then there's ordinary time, and this cycle includes the Sundays following Pentecost and emphasizes the longing for Christ's return. And there aren't any major feast days, at least that I want to recognize, associated with this cycle. Now, the way that these cycles operate then is they give Christians in a church as a whole a, a way of living out the life of Christ in their daily lives. So um, I'll talk about how this gets incorporated a little bit more but ultimately, by attending to at least these cycles on the Christian calendar, the church is able to better embrace the story of God in Christ and allowing that story to become the very air that we breathe breathe, and the scaffolding that's around us. It orients us to a season of time so that we can be better measure and orient the successive moments of our days. So let me talk about the liturgical calendar in Christian worship um, so this, the, the calendar can be observed by individuals in a way, but the very nature of calendars are to unite people together to observe the same thing. And so as I've talked with friends from other church traditions who, um, whose churches follow these calendars pretty precisely, and I, I talked about this past Lent, my wife and I observed Lent with some friends of ours, and um, they just thought it was a little bit weird that as a church we weren't emphasizing this. And um, if you want to see my thoughts on Lent, I wrote a little post for our church, a Baptist perspective on Lent, that might be helpful if you're struggling to, to follow with this. Um, but the, the calendar is meant to bring people together to have a shared focus and time together. And as you look out, even this past week, July 4th weekend did something in our nation to have a bunch of people focus on the same thing um, at the same time. Now, certainly there were different interpretations of that event. And uh, there, there are some who were burning American flags on July 4th, and there were others who were shooting off fireworks in celebration of the American flag on July 4th. But everyone entered into the event of July 4th. And, and they acted it out in a particular way, whether that was lighting off fireworks as if we're part of these cannons, you know, fending off the British or burning the flag that marched on the territory of individuals who owned this, this land before the colonists came. There was a reenactment of the events of that celebrate this, this idea of independence. Well, the Christian calendar does the same thing. It draws people together for a corporate formative experience as we work out the life of Christ in, in the church together. How, how have we done this here so far? Well, during the four-week season of Advent leading up to the Christmas celebration, at the start of each sermon on that Sunday, I had like three to five minutes where I talked about the theme of, of Advent for that day. Um, one of our, our 
Sister churches, I suppose, Redeemer Bible Church in Minnetonka celebrates in a similar way, and they also each week light a different candle of the, of the four as, as they talk about these things. Well, there, it's hard to know exactly how a low church should operate in all of these sorts of things, um, but whether it's decorating the church in the color theme of that season or a service oriented to that particular theme, so for, for instance, um, a sermon on the ascension of Jesus Christ on Ascension Sunday, that would be very appropriate. I think it would be good for us to at least have an awareness of, of the Christian calendar. I said that we were going to have plenty of time for discussion, and, and I'm almost done here. I, I want to say that as, as we conclude here then, um, what, what does this mean for our, our general worship? Well, I, I think it would be great if each of you had a, a Christian calendar printed out at, at your home so you can measure times and seasons and think about these things. And as these days come up and as these seasons come, we're going to comment on them and mention them and talk about how these events in Christ's life and in the, in, uh, the life of the church, like Pentecost and, and Trinity Sunday and these other things impact us. We're going to talk about these things and, and try to at least have us um, come together with a general awareness of these things and then investigate the meaning of these days and, and feasts along the way. This is not a forced participation. We're, we're a free church in, in that sense. We're, we're not like our Anglican brothers and sisters where um, y- there's a lot more uh, prefab where you'll just enter into it. I think there's some benefit to that. Um, but so no, if, if you are allergic to the church calendar, it's okay. Um, just bear with us. And, and I think over time you'll see that it, it may be more helpful and in less Roman Catholic and more just Catholic in the term sense of universal church than you might think. Okay, that brings me to the end of our time. We have like three minutes to talk about whatever you'd like to talk about, church calendar or otherwise, on this final um, worship Bible class. Any Anything that you want to chase? Okay, it sounds like I've convinced you all of my views on everything that we've covered over this quarter. Um, If that's not the case, know that I'm always happy to talk, and you can talk to Josh or Steve as well. I think we're in general agree. We're in agreement on everything I've presented, Um, so I think we're we're good there. All right, let me pray for us, and I'll just remind you that next week Josh begins Bible class as he does the evangelism training with Christianity Explored. And I'm going to be gone for the next two weeks, so pray for me. I'm speaking at two camps, one in Michigan and one in Pennsylvania, and then speaking at a church in Michigan along the way. So pray for me, pray for Katie while she is, you know, tending to our dog and living by herself for a couple weeks. Um, And uh, yeah, if you need to check in on her, send her a text. But, or better yet, join her as she works at the new building many nights a week sanding and painting and that kind of stuff that that would be the best way to spend time with her (laughs) is what she's told me let me pray father thank you for the the word that you've given us and for for making us in your image and giving us the capacity to worship you protect our hearts from worshiping other things 
protect us from chasing after our worship of ourselves and our and idolatry? Would you always orient us to worship you, but not just as individuals, but as a church? Would you allow us to join with one another as we worship you collectively? And as we pray that your spirit would continue to dwell within us as your holy temple. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you.